This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about greenagers. American youth now in high school and college are coming of age in an era of fossil-fueled wild weather. Severe floods, storms, and fires are on the rise and are forecast to increase further as carbon pollution increases. Stabilizing the Earth's climate that supports our economy and our lifestyle is going to require big changes in the way we produce food and energy, manage water, and get around. It's a huge challenge. The payoff is more sustainable economy and healthier communities. Over the next hour, we'll look at what's happening in school classrooms and lunchrooms in California and other states. What are students learning about the causes, consequences, and solutions to climate volatility? What are they doing to become part of the solution while they're still in school? To have this conversation, we came to Look Wilmerding High School in San Francisco. Our guests are three people working to educate and prepare students to build a cleaner and more resilient future. Ashel Eldridge is Education and Leadership Manager at the Alliance for Climate Education, a nonprofit group based in Oakland. Heather Frombach is a Statewide Food Systems Coordinator at the Community Alliance with Family Farmers. And Mark McCaffrey is Programs and Policy Director at the National Center for Science Education. Please welcome them to Climate One. Shell Eldridge, let's begin with you. Tell us your personal story, how you came to be a, a climate champion and, and using your artistic work. So tell us that. Well, a number of things brought me to this point. One, I was working at Green Fraud with Van Jones. I'm not sure if people are familiar with him. I'm a champion for green jobs, specifically in low-income communities. Right now he's on CNN, Crossfire, he does a bunch of things now, Rebuild the Dream. Um, but started working with him and started traveling around the, world, the country, actually, communicating with different communities, dealing with climate change in our own really unique ways and providing solutions. And simultaneously, I was also an artist, so I rocked with like bass nectar, um, rocked with like, you know, Wu-Tang, a lot of different uh, folks. Um, so, you know, after Green Frog, Alliance Climate Education was like, wow, that's perfect, that's what we need. We need someone who can like, communicate these issues, but also be entertaining and, and perform and present in this information in a really compelling way. So that's how I got to be with Alliance for Climate Education presenting to over 150,000 high school students in the Bay Area and having a lot of fun doing it and being inspired, really, by uh, what's going on in communities. Heather Frombach, you recently moved to California from Texas. Tell us how you got to the, the Community Alliance for Family Farms and this part of the food part of the climate issue. I'm originally from San Jose, um, and I moved to Austin, Texas to go to grad school. And um, kind of at the beginning of grad school and of college, I was really into uh, labor justice organizing, and I was really trying to explore. Um, I'm, I'm half Mexican-American, and I was really into searching for my roots and the Texas-Mexico border where my family is from, and got involved with a couple of organizations, including one where I led solidarity delegations down to the border and looked at women who are working in maquiladoras, which are uh, basically sweatshops, 
organizing for their rights. So taking that justice framework, I ended up kind of getting more into food and looking into how justice intersects with local food systems. So in graduate school, I, you know, I kind of really ate up everything there was to do around food. I uh, worked as a delivery driver. I worked in the school cafeteria um, at UT Austin, um, got to know the executive chef and how that campus food system works. I worked for the city's um, sustainable food policy board and was able to take part of a process where um, I contributed language to the city's comprehensive plan, which is a big document that kind of you know, lays out how the city's going to be governed for the next 30 years. I became an organizer with an organization called Real Food Challenge, which builds power on college campuses across the country to change their food systems. Um, you know, it's, it's based college stu students taking control of how food is sourced and working with, the, with food service professionals and um, the chefs on campus to make sure that the food sourced is uh, local, real, ethical, humane. Um, and just, and then eventually I, I came to work for the city of Austin's urban agriculture program and was part of our process to update the city's code around where urban farms can go, what can happen on them, um, and managing a lot of neighborhood conflict around that. So that was a really interesting process too. So after that kind of era of my life, I, I really wanted to kind of move back home to California. Um, you know, California, we're, we're very, very blessed here to have the best water, the best soil, kind of the most energy and agitation around food systems. So I wanted to come back and be in the middle of that. So I came and, and started working for a community alliance with Family Farmers, which is an organization that is primarily farmer oriented, but it's kind of going through an identity shift where it wants to see where it fits in in California's overall food systems. And where I'm working on most closely in that is, is, is farm to school. So basically how can we link all of these family farmers that are kind of getting swallowed up by big, big mega farms and link them into schools that are trying to feed healthier food to children and make sure that they're educated and empowered around that. Mark McCaffrey, how did you get to be where you are helping educators in schools around the country uh, improve their science curriculum, both with regard to climate change and other science issues? First of all, thanks very much for inviting me to be here, Greg. And uh, I work for the National Center for Science Education, which is based in Oakland, and it's been around for over 30 years but I don't get into schools too often, and I, it's always a treat to be in a school and have a chance to speak with students, and hopefully we'll have a chance to learn a little bit from you about uh, what all you're learning about and what some of your concerns might be. But I grew up in Colorado, and at a young age, I think it was, I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, I learned about the water cycle and how the human body is mostly water and how through the water cycle we're connected very literally connected to the clouds and the trees and the ocean. And that kind of blew my mind. And I thought, boy, if people just understood how everything's connected to everything, then they'd take better care of the world. And of course, that was a bit of a naive idea at that time. But I pursued that over the years. And I focused on water for, for many years. When I went to graduate school, I did a thesis on water as an integrating and interdisciplinary theme in education because it's a way to bring together all sorts of different topics, science and history, mathematics, and all, all sorts of disciplines. And from my interest in water, it inevitably led me to climate and climate change. So about, I guess, 2001, I started working for NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, doing education and outreach work for their paleoclimatology program. Paleoclimate is a study of ancient climates. And in order to understand what's happening now and into the future, it's helpful to have some sense of what's happened in the past. And we have seen abrupt climate change in the past. We may be poised for abrupt climate change due to human impacts in the future here. 
But uh, I came out here to California about two and a half years ago to help lead this climate change initiative for the National Center for Science Education. And uh, it's been really fascinating to learn more about uh, all the incredible things going on here in California and across the country. Michelle Eldridge, the Alliance for Climate Education goes into schools and does presentations. I've seen it's a very cool presentation. They did it here at Lick Wilmerding, I think the last time was 2009, so the current students haven't seen it. But tell us what you do and go into school and how you connect with high school students in a way that is real for them to make something so big and complex as climate change. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, we, um, you know, we, Alliance for Climate Education, we collaborated with our free range media. You might know them from the, the story of stuff and and some of the uh, sort of animated educational videos like that. So collaborated with them. So we put together like a 40-minute multimedia presentation, music. I mean, there's celebrities in it, you know, Drake's in it. I mean, different people are involved in it. But we tell the story, the situation, from the point of view of a, of a young person and really look at, like, how we're actually living large. So you tell that situation, like, how we live in large and how it's actually impacting the environment and how much space we're taking up. But then we talk about the science behind that, the consequences if we do absolutely nothing, and then the solutions, and actually inspire other young folks in schools around the country by telling the stories of young folks in schools around the country, right? Um, so that's essentially what we do, um, and then after that, we set up programs in the schools or collaborate with the teams that are already set up in the schools, action teams, environmental clubs, and get some leadership skills developed from there, and we have Youth Action Labs after that to really drive things home. Um, right now, we're working on a bunch of cool stuff around the country, and I'm working a lot actually on food, so I'm looking to talk more with Heather. Absolutely. We're working on the food, climate, and health issues, and the connections between that based on, on the interests of some of the students that we have been working with in like Salinas and the Central Coast area, and also like in Concord and in Oakland as well. So just inspiring. It's, it's fun. A lot of music and engagement. And it's directly talking about the issues that young folks, young folks are, have shaped the actual video. So we bring, have a youth council and they come in and actually look at, hey, that does not work. That's lame. That sucks. Or whatever. And then we're like, okay, wow, what should we do? How, how should we do that? So they're actually involved in that process of creating that. And what are some schools, whether it's Fremont High or others, where you've gone in there <clears throat> and there's been some real action that, that's come out of your presentation that's really catalyzed something? Yeah. So, you know, Fremont High, one in the Fremont High, that's a good you mentioned that, Fremont High, um, they were like, well, our school, our school food, it, it sucks, right? So that's pretty much what he was saying. And so we looked at, well, what it would look like to actually have local organic produce. We actually did a training, too, around it. So we looked at what the benefits are around uh, localized food miles, like what that, the impact is on the climate, and also organic agriculture, like what that does in terms of uh, carbon sequestration and all this. So we looked at the science between that. And as he said, yeah, well, we need to do some more organic food, also for the health of the students, for their ability to stay awake and not, not off a bunch of classes. So he was like, yeah, let's actually get a, a, a salad bar in our school. Um, so that happened. Well, one thing we also emphasize is just the process. So we look at, like, what, what is it actually going to take to actually get this happening? It's something that's a legacy at your school, because, you know, we got that four years there. So, you know, that happened in the sense that we actually set up a campaign around it. And now that campaign is going, like looking at the conversations, who needs to be talked to in order to get it actually finalized. Then we have, um, you know, Mount Diablo High School. They're doing actually a farm to table program. They have it and they want to expand it. Students have lost, you know, 100 pounds. Like students are like, I lost 100 pounds. I used to go to the corner store every day. Now I go, I eat at home ag. So they, and they grow their food out. And they, a lot of education is happening in the garden, obviously. So. That's been an amazing campaign. And then finally, the, really the one that I'm really, it's at the deeper part of my heart right now is the uh, Farm Work Appreciation Day that we're actually organizing in Salinas uh, with a lot of students 
um, families of farm workers who looked at this issue, looked at the drought that we're experiencing in California, looked at the fact that a lot of economic deprivation is happening with their family members, essentially based on what's happening, and find, find out that climate change fingerprints is, is all over it. And it was like, yeah, we actually need to do something to appreciate our farmers, appreciate our family members, and use it as a, a platform to communicate some of the solutions. So we've got Alba Farms who you know, does economic development with farmers and make sure their food is grown organically. And, and things like that, and, and no pesticides affecting the birth of children in the community. And so really like come in and, and just lift up the conversations of what spark the students are, are excited about after the, the education has been presented and really look at how do we actually make meaningful impact in the communities led by the students. Um, so it's, it's fun, really, because you actually see things shifting. And you've done some videos. Uh, Shelly has some interesting videos on YouTube that actually equates fast food purveyors to, I don't know, gangsters, pushers, right? Something like that. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in Chicago. You know, my grandmother passed away from diabetes. My, uh, oh, Chi-Town. You got a Chi-Town Chi -Town in the building. You know, my grandfather, you know, passed away from cancer. You know, had a Dr. Pepper every, every, every day for dinner. You know, we never really thought about it too much at the time. But after a while, you know, you know just educating our, ourselves, you know, I started making the connections. It was like, wow, there's actually connection between food, climate, and health that we can actually make, and the solutions to that can actually shift our whole culture. When also we start realizing that, you know, a third of greenhouse gases globally is coming out of um, sort of agriculture and coming out of other, it's not necessarily agriculture specifically, but the industrial food system at large. So this video is hard hitting. It's, it's based in the hood in, in, in Oakland. You know, it starts at the corner store. I'm like playing Morpheus, you know, see through the matrix of the food system. And um, we really deal with it. Like, you know, this the Twizzler, you know, people are getting strangled by Twizzlers and we, we have fights with Tony the Tiger. It's, it's how it is in real life. We just sort of sped it up and compressed it in that six minute video. Heather Frombach, you're working at Farm to Schools. Sometimes there's a perception that organic food, these sorts of things, are for elites, that they, they cost more. Is that the case? Are you able to democratize this through the Farm to Schools program? Yeah, well, I think that's the goal. And I think that, you know, the, the sort of beginnings of the food movement actually absolutely have their roots in sort of an elitism, you know, like eat this because it's better for you. It's very consumer oriented. And I think that um, the way the food movement, especially as people of color are taking more leadership in the food movement, we've been able to shift some of the frames around that and say, you know what, why don't we look at the food system as a comprehensive system, not just, you know, what Michael Pollan is buying at Berkeley Bowl, but why don't we look at um, how farm work, like Ashel was talking about, why don't we celebrate and appreciate our farm workers? Farm worker justice is connected to uh, community control over what we're growing in our communities and what's getting shipped into our communities. It's connected to climate justice, it's connected to everything. You know, looking at the food system as a comprehensive system is really key to making sure that we challenge this sort of consumption-oriented frame. So, you know, Farm to School is an interesting project and initiative because it can sort of take on some of those, I think, a little bit of problematic approach. You know, like some, sometimes people who are working in Farm to School uh, tell the story a little bit, you know, in, in not the most empowering way and say, we need to teach these kids of color how to eat better food. And what I'm seeing um, as I'm traveling around California is some challenging and pushback on that in a, in a really positive and progressive way. I was just in, in L.A. Uh, several weeks ago, and I saw... Um, I saw an African diaspora garden. I saw a Latino heritage garden that was staffed by people of color and celebrating kind of the heritages and knowledges that folks of color already have and are rediscovering and sharing with one another. And then, um, you know, that's kind of, I think, a really, really great way to, to, to frame your nutrition education around. So, you know, kind of 
you know, this each one teach one philosophy. Like everybody um, has something to share with one another. And so looking at that, that whole system, like I said, looking at the role that nonprofits can play in terms of bringing in resources, bringing in seeds, bringing in funding, and looking at the knowledges that communities already have and marrying those, that can make a really sustainable farm to school sort of justice-oriented system. And talk about Oakland Unified School District. That's an area that you're excited about, where there's some interesting things happening in Oakland. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I, I tell people that Oakland Unified is kind of like a, the star of, of farm to school, and people are like, really, Oakland? I'm like, yes, really, Oakland. <laughs> um, they've made some amazing transformations over the past several years that are really, really inspiring. You know, they have a really comprehensive system, lots of different programs going on at once. It all kind of started with on-campus farmer's markets, so, you know, increasing that community access piece. So there's um, little farmer's markets at 22 Oakland Unified Schools that are on different days of the week. So parents, when they pick up their kids, they can also buy affordable, fresh produce. That's and a great idea. As a parent, during pickup, that's a great idea. Pick absolutely. up your kids and your groceries at the same time. That's Yeah. Uh, so it started, sort of started with that. And then um, that transformed into being able to hire someone at the school district who is the farm to school supervisor is her title. And she's able to make a lot more changes around the district. So, for instance, they've been able to change their distributors to a local distributor. So this distributor is the person, the company that brings the produce into the school. So instead of using a big one like Cisco, which, you know, brings in produce, it doesn't really matter from where. They just look for the lowest price point. It's not, doesn't, it's not necessarily sustainable or organic or local. Changing to a distributor that cares about those values and bringing those in. They've also been able to work with their food service uh, workers on um, recipe development. So working together on making things like fish pozole, chorizo and kale, like things that are delicious and fresh and interesting and not just like, you know, kind of boring, the typical health food that we think of, but things that are culturally relevant to Oakland Unified's really diverse student body and that are also delicious and local. In working with food service workers, I'm making sure that they have the skills that they need, the skills that they want, getting them trained and um, getting them, you know, kind of on board. So it's like a team effort. It's not saying like, hey, cook, do this. It's saying like, how can, you know, we do this together? So there's that part. There's you know grants that they've gotten from the federal government. You know, there's one called California Thursdays. You know a lot of schools around the country who are doing this farm to school thing are focusing mostly on vegetables, but Oakland Unified is taking that a really big step further. So they're doing a program called California Thursdays, where on one Thursday a week everything on the plate is going to be from California. So they're starting that now, and so it's going to be not just the the vegetables, but the um, the bread, the meat, the rice, you know, everything on the plate will come from California. And that's really, really good for California producers. You know, some of the, sometimes Bay Area producers or wherever the area that you're in, they kind of get overlooked. You know, when you order from Cisco, the little guys kind of get, you know, passed over. So making sure that you're sourcing from good producers, make sure, you know, really is good for the economy, it kind of links to that whole big system I was talking about earlier, you know, you know, climate is connected to farm workers, it's connected to, to farms, it's connected to the economy. So that whole system is important. Mark McCaffrey, what are schools doing? To, there's, a, there's a green schools challenge or competition, some programs to recognize green schools, both in their food as well as their energy and operations. So tell us what's happening there. there there's so much going on across the country, and uh, the green schools movement uh, encompasses a lot of different types of programs. Some of them are very focused on food. Of course, if you live in certain parts of the country, the Growing season is very short. Colorado, New York State, uh, et cetera. Uh, the growing season might be May through September, which is when schools are closed. So having a school garden is just not going to be practical unless you start to think about maybe we should have year-round schools, which is a concept that uh, is actually starting to 
get some traction in some communities. But a lot of the focus has been on energy. I think food has been a big theme in certain areas, but energy has also been one of the lightning rods, so to speak. <laughs> and a lot of schools have been doing energy audits and so forth to try to look for ways to save energy and do it in a very whole systems approach. Also looking at the transportation system, a lot of districts in this country are really struggling financially and they're having a hard time raising funds to upgrade the school facilities, let alone buy new school buses and maybe hybrid electric school buses like we have here in the Bay Area. So there's a lot of challenges that schools are looking at and just simple weatherization can be a way that schools can start to save money. But uh, also there's enormous teaching opportunities in any school and sometimes the, the teachable moments are around what's not working. So I'm wondering whether or not uh, students here at this high school have, for instance, had a field trip to the boiler room. Have any of you actually gotten a tour of the, where the energy is essentially generated for this building? I, I, I see like some it. heads nodding no, so that could be uh, some, a place for you all to be looking at. Uh, what's the HVAC system and how does that work and are there efficiencies, HVAC meaning heating, ventilation and air conditioning. That's a huge part of the operation of this school and there's probably some experts on staff whose job is to <clears throat> focus on this infrastructure, the energy infrastructure of the school. They're an expert, so tap them and, and learn more about what's happening in the school. And that's information that could benefit future students if you find ways that you might be able to really tighten up the energy efficiency of the school. And you'll take that knowledge with you when you go on to college. So there's just so much going on with sort of the, the green schools movement writ large across the country. And I think one of the key things that I'd like to emphasize is teaching climate, teaching energy across the curriculum. Often it's not taught or taught well and there's a lot of reasons I could go into about why that is, but number one, it needs to be taught and taught well. Number two, we need to make sure that uh, disinformation is countered when people say climate change is a crock. We need to push back on that. And then thirdly, we need to infuse these topics across the curriculum. Climate and energy need to be taught everywhere, not just in one little tiny part of the science curriculum. That's happening here. I think uh, Lick Wilmerding and Urban School, and I think uh, another school in the East Bay, perhaps Head Royce, it has a blended program where, where climate change is being taught on the natural sciences, the greenhouse gas effect, and then also the political side, social science side. What are the human responses? What can people do to respond? That's one approach in the Bay Area that integrates the social and natural sciences on climate education. But Mark McCaffrey, let's stay with you and, and talk about how much pushback is there in classrooms and school districts around the country that climate change is political, humans aren't causing it, it ain't happening, Al Gore made it up. You know, a couple of years ago, we heard a lot of stories of pushback, and unfortunately, we don't have a national survey to know whether teachers are teaching climate and related topics, or where they teach, or how they teach it. We've got some anecdotal information. Uh, so what we did in a survey for our Understanding Global Change project, which is, is a collaboration with UC Berkeley, and we found that uh, a lot of teachers just in the past year or so are feeling like this is a top priority. Teaching climate change, teaching global change is a priority that all students need to know about. So they're taking steps to push back. And, and there is pushback from parents, sometimes from students who have heard from their parents that climate change is a crock or, or whatever. But it's also challenging 
in the sense of psychologically, when you start to learn about uh, what's happening with the scientists are learning in terms of future projections of, of uh, the acceleration of climate change over the, over the, the lives of, of the students here and your kids, if you have kids, it's really overwhelming sometimes to, to hear what the scientists have to say. And that emotional and psychological conundrum, that the, the challenge of feeling overwhelmed by the science is something that sometimes we avoid, we, we kind of deny. So there's sometimes literal denial saying it's not happening. Sometimes there's sort of interpretive denial. Well, maybe it's happening, but it's just natural. It has nothing to do with human activities. But the third type of denial is denying the implications and denying responsibility for what we know. And I think that's the most challenging to deal with. And that's something I think a lot of teachers wrestle with. They don't necessarily feel comfortable or confident in the content themselves. And they feel like, I don't want to overwhelm my students with too much gloom and doom. Mark McCaffrey is Programs and Policy Director at the National Center for Science Education. We're talking about climate and education at Climate One. Michelle Eldridge, I'd like to ask you, you go into schools, do you get pushback from students saying, you know, come on, this, this isn't really happening, how do you know? And also, this point here about the information can be quite dark, and how do you excite kids, give them the truth, without sending them into depression? <laughs> Yeah, well, just to preface, I mean, you know, Alliance for Climate Education, we're a national organization. So over the past five years, we've been into over uh, 1.7, 1.8 million high school students around the country. So we're not just in, a, in a California and in, in the Bay Area. So we we're also in New England. We're working on a lot of energy stuff there. We're in, you know, Chicago, Colorado, different, you know, different areas around the country. So L.A. And um, we were, we actually did have a, a Texas office at one point. And it is true, like what happens, what happened in this particular situation that was the most alarming, we do get some pushback in different places, but oftentimes it's the, um, you know, the, the students hear from their, their parents and the parents, or the parents go to the superintendent of the school, the principal, and say, hey, you know, there's propaganda being talked to my students and things like that, to my, my son, my daughter. And then so the teacher, or the superintendent, or the principal has to make some executive decisions on whether or not they're going to continue to engage with our programs and things like that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we started realizing that the teachers, they really want, you know, they want to present this information. But I think that the biggest enemy we've seen, just like, you know, Mark was alluding to, is, is apathy in some ways. Like the apathy, maybe it comes from the cognitive dissonance of the actual looking at the issue. But one thing we, one way we've addressed that is really being, you know, hyper-localized and really pulling upon, you know, so the issues like, obviously, we did a lot of agriculture here in California and things like that. But um, in Chicago, they're, they're, they're looking at, the context of anything from you know the school to prisons pipeline to how does sustainability affect the when looking at sustainable schools how can I make safer neighborhoods and and I, and I think that's really something that we sort of evolved into to really look at the context that the students actually existing in and pull on those strings a little bit more and also pull on what what are the assets that the community have like when I organize down in Salinas is it's one thing we look at first and foremost is like, wow, what do you really appreciate about your community? And he's like, what is the one thing you want to change? And, and that conversation is, everybody can speak to that immediately. And then from there, we make these connections, start connecting the dots. And that's why we also came up with the dot campaign a couple of years ago, where we say, well, one thing you can do to help the, help the environment, help cool the climate, is sort of, sort of like an on-ramp conversation. But what's really been exciting me is... Dot, dot is do one thing. Do one thing, yeah. What's your dot, right? It's so on-ramp conversation. And now we're going really deeper and looking at more like context. But what's exciting me is it's really looking at, wow, like you're really excited about, wow, well, notice you're, you're artists, or you're really excited about 
you know, what's going to happen with your, your team, your sports next, next semester. So we use that actually in, in a way to, to really like, well, how can, you know, what can you do in a certain way with your, your sports team such that there's, you don't use plastic bottles anymore. And what's the, you know, so use that as a edu point of education. So you meet people where they are and then connect climate to that. Right, right. And that's been really successful and really fun. Heather Frombach, let's get you on, in terms of how to be candid and real while being hopeful, because it's easy to get kind of like, wow, this is so big. How do we know that we're making a difference? Yeah, you, you know, that's it's been kind of an interesting process for me because as, you know, as I'm somebody that grew up eating McDonald's and rice and Pop-Tarts, I didn't eat a peach till I was 21 years old. You know, like I... Did you have a, a chocolate milk and pizza for breakfast in school? Like absolutely, someone? you know, yeah. and I, you know, so it's, it's been interesting for me to, and, you know, when I was working with Real Food Challenge, you know, we're going around to college campuses and trying to inspire college students, like, you can do something about this terrible food system. It's going to be a really long battle, but we can do it, and it's like, you know, this really big kind of, you know, epic battle to try to turn their campus food systems around, and a lot of colleges have been successful at that, amazingly, at, you know, getting their, their campus, you know, food cafeterias on board and actually making changes, and it's really great when that happens. But the University still, of California had some real progress there, right? Yes, so. uh, UC Santa Cruz um, now sources 30% of their um, of their of their cafeteria food. It's either local, um, sustainable, ethical, or humane. And now, actually, the California State University, the CSU system, is is considering signing on all of their campuses, and that's going to be a huge millions and millions of dollars of shift in the food system that's really powerful. So that you know, there's a lot of hope and opportunity there. But, you know, it's still, for, for me, it seems like, ah, there's so much work to be done. But then I go to these elementary schools and middle schools around the state, and I'm like, wow, things are already really, really different. Like, I'm so hopeful and excited about what I've seen. You know, like, like you said, I, I was eating the pizza and chocolate milk at lunch at my, you know, my elementary school and middle school. And here I am going to schools, you know, that have just crazy improvements over the past several years. I'm like, wow, I wish I had what these kids have. You know, they, they have garden educators that come and are showing them all the worms in the garden and they're drawing pictures of worms. They're eating salad right off of the, the leaves. I would have never done that. And then um, that is kind of building the success of what's going on at the cafeteria. You know, you obviously can't introduce something crazy like chorizo and kale and expect kids to just eat it. So there's kind of a complementary thing happening where kids are learning about what kale is in the garden, where it comes from, or learning about, you know, like where chorizo is made in, in the Bay Area, you know, the chorizo that Oakland Unified gets is made locally in San Jose. And then, you know, when they come to the cafeteria, they already know the story of the food. They see it and they say, I, you know, like that kale looks like just the one that I was growing with Miss Sarah in the garden and that chorizo. I know where it comes from the Bay Area. And that is building a really strong foundation for just thinking about food systems and thinking about, you know, how, how, how they work and, and what it means to them and how it relates to them. So it's not this big divorce, you know, that a lot of us, I think, maybe experienced growing up. So we're talking about food and climate at Lake Wilmoting High School, so let's have our first question. Welcome. So you've all kind of talked about the programs that you do to encourage involvement in schools. How can we as a school community try to do that ourselves? Are there steps that you suggest that we go to? Ashel? Yeah, well, schools, schools address this in a lot of different ways. One, time, one thing I do when I have meetings with the environment, you guys have an environmental club here? Or like a club... Yay, big up to the environmental club. So one thing I do when I come to school, I actually big up the environmental club. I make sure they get on the stage and they can rock stars immediately because people need to know who's actually, there's actually infrastructure already built. Like there's people meeting. When do you meet? Every, Every rotation. rotation. So they meet right? regularly, yeah. 
Right. Okay. Right. So, so you know, that's already something you can stand on and say, "Hey, let's see what those times are. Make sure people know about that." And um, I usually invite people to have their stories, share their stories. Really start really simple, like what, like what actually, what actually inspires you to show up? Why, why are you actually here? And really starting really simple, and then do the same thing I just explained. Like, you know, what are you really inspired about about the school already? Right? Because those are gonna be assets when you start organizing and start getting certain things done. You're gonna want to plug into those things and actually use that. And then after that, it's just asking a lot of questions, right? Asking a lot of questions. Sometimes people do, students do uh, surveys of the student body, like the same thing you would do with your individual group. Like, have you even thought about this? Try to get a gauge of like what people really actually care about. You'll get a lot of information from that, and you'll know exactly where to go. It's, it's exciting when people take the time to actually do that, that legwork. As I mentioned, there, there's lots of learning, teachable moments, uh, learning opportunities here at the school. You know, learning more about the energy infrastructure, thinking about where does our energy come from? Is there waste that we could tighten up? Where does the food that we consume here come from? And then take that out into the broader community. You know, share this information with your friends and family. There's an organization called Cool the Earth, which is K through 8 education, and they have primary school kids make commitments and then take them home. And really, the kids are an avenue to get to the parents who have the purchasing power and, and, and change the family habits that way. Welcome. Let's have our question. So how much food or how much percentage of food would you guys suggest that we should be buying locally or that our school should be buying locally or that just our community should be buying that's a great question, and the answer is as much as you can and as much as is possible. I think that a lot of schools and universities, when they're trying to get started with a, a local or a sustainable um, buying program, they get kind of overwhelmed because it can be really hard to see, you know, how you can improve what you're doing or how you can change the whole system of what you're doing. You know, food service buyers, a lot of times the way that they order food, like say from Cisco, a big distributor, like I mentioned before, you know, you just type it into a computer and press enter or you just make one phone call and press enter. So sometimes changing that, like, you know, if you want to buy from several different farmers, that means changing the whole way that you run your operation. So maybe you have to make more phone calls. Maybe you have to change the way that you pay the people that you're buying food from. So um, that can be really, really overwhelming for a lot of people who are working in food, who have very, very little time. So the answer is to start small. You know, like what a lot of schools do, like what, you know, what I learned a lot with Real Food Challenges, start with things like um, with buying whole fruit, you know, like berries or apples that you can get from, from just one local farmer or ask the distributor that you already use hey, I'm paying you a lot of money, you know, like, I'm, I'm your customer, why don't you get me some, some really good product and let's try it out one thing at a time and then grow from there. Because if you get, start off with getting things like, you know, something like kale takes a lot of labor, you know, if your kitchen doesn't, is, you know, just one big wall of microwaves and you don't have knives, you don't have a stove, you don't have the, all the equipment that you need, you can't start there. You gotta start small and build up from it. So once you get you know, your one product in, then you can start looking at, okay, how can I start getting another product? Like maybe I can start having one training for my staff so they can, you know, we can get some more knives, we can get a grant to get more equipment, and then we can start training them, start looking at menu development, and then just build from there. And then once you have those, um, all those programs set up, then you can start buying as much you know, local food as you can afford or that you, can, that you can do. And there's different things you can do to make it more affordable too. Like UC Santa Cruz, like I mentioned earlier, one of the main ways that they made uh, room in their budget so they could afford the more expensive, you know, organic, local, sustainable food was they switched their dining to trayless dining. So they, so they weren't, you know, having these trays that they had to wash every, like, all the time. So they saved $40,000 doing that, which they were able to invest in buying more, um, you know, better food. You know, we're very fortunate here in the Bay Area that we have almost a year-round growing season. You, you go to a 
farmer's market in December, January, and you're going to find uh, pretty fresh food. And if you go to a farmer's market in New York City or Colorado in the middle of the winter, assuming you can even find a farmer's market, uh, you're going to be seeing rutabagas and uh, you know root vegetables because that's really all the fresh food that you can get at that time of year. So we're very fortunate here. We are, in California, the breadbasket of America. And so a lot of the schools and other parts of the country re rely on food that's trucked to them from California. Let's have our next question. Welcome. In going to schools and making changes, um, like if you are trying to change the, where their food's coming from, I assume a lot of that happens on the administrative level. So what role do we as students have in that process? And how much can we influence that? And how do we do that? Um, I actually, Frumbuck, yeah. yeah, at high schools, you're starting to see kind of more of this, you know, like in Riffle Challenge deals mostly with colleges, as I mentioned, but we actually have had one high school sign on to the Real Food Commitment, Real Food Campus Commitment, which is Hotchkiss School in Connecticut. So um, students there, especially led by one student leader, uh, Sunny, she was able to, um, you know, start having the meetings, kind of like Ashel was talking about, the strategy that he laid out is just perfect. Start with your club, start asking questions about where the food is coming from. You can, you can ask, you know, you guys are students, you go here. You're kind of customers of the system here. So you can, you can go ask uh, the people who are working, who are serving you food at lunch and say, like, how would I learn more about where this food is coming from? Or, you know, like, with your environmental club, you can say, that you want to meet with an administrator and just have a conversation and say, like, we want to learn more about this. We want to see what we're already doing well and what we can do better and how we can, you know, support it. So, like Ashel said, you can have a survey where you can take a survey of, of your fellow students then say, like, you know, how do you feel about the food? What can be done better? And you can use that as a basis and take it to the administration and say, we're doing some good things already, but here's how we could do better. So just kind of, you know, starting to have those conversations and realizing that you can is definitely the first step. Yeah, never underestimate the power that you have as students to be able to Talk with your teachers Definitely. and pester your administrators. And, you know, for instance, if you want to have a tour of the boiler room and the HVAC system, talk to the teachers and then maybe escalate it up to the principal if you need to, saying, we feel like there's so much we could learn about uh, the school and the energy we consume in this building, but uh, we need access and we need an expert here at the school to help us better understand that. And just one thing on, on food is uh, some restaurants are doing is just presenting information about what is local and when, because you don't know unless it's labeled, and so just information, if not changing practices. Shell Eldridge? Yeah, I think, that, I think what, we, what we're honing in on is really amazing, because we, we had, even in the energy sector, so we have a campaign called The Biggest Loser Energy, you know, Biggest Loser, seen Biggest Loser on TV, right, and the first thing, what's the first thing they do on Biggest Loser? The first thing they do, like, to proceed with the next round, or actually know where they're actually going with the round, is they actually weigh themselves, right? So the first thing you got to do is like weigh yourself, right? To know what the competition is going to look like. So that's what we sort of encourage in whatever school we're in is like, wow, to do an assessment of where you're actually at. And I think that's what we're talking about is sort of really getting a sense of what's actually going on to actually make some changes. You only can shift what you can measure in some ways. Mm -hmm. So one thing we did, like for example, in the school in, um, in San Jose, they found out that essentially there was water was pouring in, a, in their lunchroom at night at like three o'clock and a fan was just coming on randomly, like for hours, it would come on, this big, huge fan and like water was like, you know, dripping through it. So, well, they, they, they saw that, they found that they were doing assessments on, this, on the space and then they saved themselves $20,000 a year just looking at that. And these students actually went on, there were some of our climate fellows and went on to actually create their own nonprofit, Valence Energy, to actually educate other high schools in the area about how to actually do energy assessments, energy audits on their schools. 
Um, right, so it goes a long way just to do that initial homework and dig deep into your own particular school because it's definitely like Mark was saying, it's the, uh, the playground education field right, right here, right now. That's a microcosm for the rest of the world. Michelle Eldridge is the Education and Leadership Manager at the Alliance for Climate Education. We're talking about climate and education at Climate One. Let's have our next question. So do we have enough supply of small local farms and food to meet this demand if we stop getting our food off of you know, the Cisco truck? Cisco, that's S-Y-S-C-O. Okay. Right, right. Um, yeah, the the answer is is no right now, but um, I think that's that's the best thing about um, you know kind of the approach that you know organizations like Real Food Challenge and Community Alliance with Family Farmers take is um, is that we're shifting, right? You know, we're not you know saying that nobody is going to order from Cisco anymore. We're going to completely transition one day, um, but we're but we're creating a shift that's going to be sustainable in the long term. You know what? When we when we look at UC Santa Cruz, they're still sourcing seventy percent of their uh, of their food from from the big distributors like Unified or um, U.S. Foods or, or Cisco. And, uh, and that's okay. 30% uh, going towards local, sustainable, ethical, humane sources is millions and millions of dollars. You know, that's, you know, that's going to be, you know, if, if Real Food Challenge achieves its goal of, of shifting, um, you know, most of the major universities in the country to at least 20% real food by the year 2020, that's like over a billion dollars of shift towards better sources. And it can only build from there. It took many decades to get kind of the, the big bad system, the conventional system set up. And it's gonna take a long time to shift it back towards something more sustainable and just. So, you know, the answer is let's work on it together. Heather Frombach works with the California Farm to Schools program. Let's talk about jobs here in terms of is there a prospect for a career in food or farming? Heather Frombach, as the baby boomers retire, there's a need for up to, what, 100,000 farmers in America. Uh, there's some evidence that young people are going into farming, which used to be something people got away from. That's what their grandparents did. Is there a, a career and a future in food? And you might talk about, I guess, the food core also. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been kind of interesting to see the difference between California and Texas, for instance. You know, Texas is really kind of a representative, you know, U.S. farming population, primarily white and aging, you know, between like over the age of 55. Um, and Texas has a very specific um, history of, you know, either preventing land ownership by people of color or forcibly forcing them off of off of land um, and lots of really problematic land history there. So it's been kind of complicated, you know, working with young farmers there. There's not too many young farmers of color who are coming up. There are a few, but mostly you see kind of like a younger white uh, coalition of farmers emerging and, you know, kind of work, trying to work through that complicated history. And you see a lot of food justice efforts uh, in Austin and in Houston uh, in particular, where um, people of color are becoming young farmers more in an urban setting and not so much out, outside of the city limits. Um, in California, it's, it's obviously completely different. I think that you see a lot more um, immigrant farmers who are starting to take a foothold um, and learn business strategies and um, are, are taking that, that farmer path, and that's going down through even the younger generations. And then you also see kind of a younger sort of hip farmer um, movement. You know, there are these farmer guilds Forming. Gen, gen, sort of gentrified boutique, like people going into the wine industry are now going into arugula and other things? Yeah, you see, you see some of that. And then you also see, um, you know, kind of some more diversified farming stuff. So it's, it's California is a lot more of, of, of a mix and, and very unique. But one of the organizations that we, that we work with um, that Eshel probably knows is ALBA, um, which is a great organization that 
is in Monterey County in, in Watsonville and provides educational and business development services primarily oriented towards Latino immigrants. And so they have a farm and they're actually one of the big vendors that sells to Oakland Unified. So they, you know, Oakland Unified gets a lot of their berries, for instance, from there and their kale. And that's been a great source of revenue for Alba. And they also, um, you know, like I said, do business development for, for um, Latino farm workers who are seeking to step up and become their own, you know, farmer entrepreneurs. So we see a lot of that going. In terms of, you know, non-specific agricultural jobs, you know, you mentioned baby boomers. Kind of, baby boomers kind of left our generation out to dry in a lot of ways. So we've kind of had to create our own jobs or find new fields and new ways of interacting with the food system if we want to do that. So Food Corps is kind of a new and interesting um, organization that sprung up. I actually co-oversee California Food Corps in partnership with, uh, with Life Lab, which is a school garden organization in Santa Cruz. And, uh, you know, it's, it's 20% funded by AmeriCorps. And so it's kind of got this AmeriCorps base. And basically, it's deploying um, young people throughout the country in 15 states, California. This is our first year. And they're really kind of bridging these three pillars of knowledge, education, and access. So we have just these incredibly motivated young people uh, from all over the country. We're really trying to focus more next year on recruiting like locally from local communities to serve in the communities that they have knowledge of. But that's definitely a really good path for people who are interested in food systems to take. You know, when I was younger, I did AmeriCorps. If Food Corps had been around, I probably would have done that. So there's lots of new opportunities popping up. And I'm always really amazed by kind of the new innovative ways that, that our generation is coming up with um, to insert themselves in the food system in new ways. Michelle Elder, just get you on the, the jobs path. People learn about these things that they, they can incorporate it into their lifestyle, their decisions. But how about uh, as a career? And you worked for Green for All, which sort of one of the original champions of green collar jobs. Yeah, we saw, I mean, one thing I always note was like, you know, 2008 when, you know, he's going through a lot of financial issues nationally. One of the, the biggest growth sectors was still the green economy. You know, it was the only thing that was really peaking um, through. So we just emphasize that. I mean, I did a lot of work in, in Oakland, so I worked with the Green Jobs Corps, and obviously solar, you know, there's like solar mosaic, there's longevity, there's, there's so many things going on in California. The price of solar is going down. A lot of fun stuff happening with crowdfunding solar, like really cool, innovative stuff that obviously is impacting um, you know, things nationally. So one thing we also know around, around jobs and, and economics is that there's a lot of jobs that haven't, the, the, the nature of um, what we're dealing with, the different factors with climate, the, you know, sort of the financial, the economic instability in some ways you're experiencing, but also like the innovation, the path, like the technology is taking, the path that just like the, the knowledge infrastructure is like taking within a, a young population. There's a lot of jobs that haven't even been invented yet. You know, next five, 10, 15 years, there's going to be a lot more jobs we don't even know about that's going to be required to deal with our current situation. So that requires, like, you know, just really just imagination. So we really focus on that and really focus on just building skills right now in the schools that you're going to be applicable, whatever position and job you see yourself in later. Mark McCaffrey, there's something called the College President's Climate Commitment. Tell us about that and what that's done around uh, universities and colleges around the country. Yes, it's an organization that is organized by a group out of Boston called Second Nature, and they've pulled together over 700 colleges and universities to, number one, develop a climate action plan, and number two, teach climate and sustainability to all their students somehow or another. And that second piece has been the most challenging. It's easy to get somebody from facilities and operations to come up with uh, a plan over 50 years of how you're going to cut back your carbon emissions 
And of course, in 50 years, most of the people that put those plans together won't be around. So they can sort of shoot for the sky in terms of how we're going to magically have technology that will allow us to have no emissions 50 years from now, which, you know, hopefully we can make some breakthroughs in technology for sure. But uh, there is a revolution going on in, in higher ed, and a lot of it is because of the president's climate commitment. Uh, but there's also a revolution going on in K-12 and in informal science education. And, you know, we feel, and back to your point about the, the jobs, that uh, the, the jobs of the future, which a lot of them we don't know what they're going to look like yet, uh, and they have to be invented, but they will require people to have at least basic essential climate and energy literacy. In terms of food, we, what are the implications for climate change, for water shortages on, on and, and sea level rise? The, the Central Valley of California is basically at sea level, and if water levels come up as projected uh, a couple of feet over the coming decades, that's going to have an enormous impact on agriculture, not just in the Central Valley, but throughout this country, since so much of the food comes from the Central Valley. Uh, so these things are all interconnected, and uh, we need a revolution. To, it needs to be stepped up to a whole other level for us to have climate and energy literate citizens who can make these informed choices. And we've been talking about the local and state level, but there are uh, not many people look to Washington for hope or inspiration these days, but there are some things that are happening uh, from uh, the federal government, from NOAA. Tell us a little bit briefly about some of the data and information efforts to get more information and more education about this into schools. Yeah, that's Perfect. right. There's some very exciting work going on. The National Climate Assessment is coming out at the end of April 2014. And that is going to be very interactive. A website through globalchange.gov will be a way that people can access essentially state-of-the-art visualizations and maps and all sorts of data. The White House just last week announced this climate data initiative that uh, is essentially a treasure trove for data wonks. But we need ways that students and average citizens can access that data because it's right now it's overwhelming and it's almost too much information, uh, which I think is part of the challenge that we face these days is there's just so many competing interests and other priorities that we're trying to juggle. And making it, making it real for people. I'd like to ask you, who are your climate heroes? Who, I mean, who are some people that, that you look to as like, wow, that person, Michelle Eldridge, who's someone who you've met that was like, wow, that person really inspires me on this? Well, I am. Um... I got an opportunity because Van couldn't make it to this meeting, so I, I ended up meeting a lot of people. He was like, yeah, you could go. At the time, we were, we were working there. Wangari Matai, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, first I think, African woman out of um, to win it, and, you know, planting millions of trees in, in, in Kenya and in Eastern Africa, and really inspiring a generation of people, I'm noticing, as I, I talk more about her organizing around not just looking at the connection between like you know land and, and economics, but also around self empowerment and the power when individuals are self aware and have knowledge of self and what that means to transforming the actual climate of a and the landscape of a, of a whole um, ecosystem, right? Like the power that exists exists inside of a of a community. So one guy Matai. Heather Frombach, climate hero. Oh, boy. I don't know if I have a specific climate hero, but um, in t I guess in, in terms of food systems, one of my favorite thinkers is definitely Julie Guthman, who's a professor at UC Santa Cruz. And, you know, I mean, Michael Pollan has done, I think, a lot for food movement visibility. But as I mentioned earlier, he really comes from a consumption-oriented framework and tends to, um, I think, fall into 
some of like the elitism trap that we that we talked about earlier. And Julie Guthman, um, I think, provides a very powerful counterpoint in terms of thinking about food systems and and justice in particular. Um, I think she really challenges the sort of conventional notions of um, thinking not just about how how food is is moved, but um, but also about you know, ecology and how it translates into our own bodies and about capitalism and about the internet connections of things. And I think one of her, one of my favorite arguments of hers is that, you know, it's it's great to um, to start and go to farmer's markets and start and, and do urban farming, but don't get too caught up in creating an alternative system because you leave the people who are most harmed by the food system and the conventional food system behind. Starting an urban farm doesn't do anything for farm workers, for instance. Starting a farmer's market doesn't change the, uh, the family farmers who are too big to sell at the farmer's market, but maybe too small to sell to a Safeway. So, um, you know, being conscious that in creating alternatives, don't forget to do the hard, really, really hard, long work of, uh, of reforming and, and lifting up the people who are most harmed in the conventional system. Thank you. Mark McCaffrey, either uh, education, I interpret climate to include food, water, education. So who are some of your heroes that you've seen? My heroes are really the teachers who are having those conversations with their students, with their other faculty, with their administrators to figure out how to teach these topics across the curriculum, inside out, upside down. We need a transformation of the way we teach these things because it's not just a matter of getting the information out there about climate change and energy and food. We need to be able to get that information out in a way that is building knowledge and know-how. And that's how the revolution that we vitally need to be able to transform the world to be able to uh, minimize the impacts and be able to be ready for changes, whatever they hold in store for us. So that, that's what, how we need to have that revolution happen. I'd like to borrow from Alliance for Climate Education and say, uh, people who are listening to this, what is their dot? What is a dot? Do one thing. People listen to this. It can be overwhelming. It seems so big. Gosh, okay, I changed my light bulbs. Maybe I drive a fuel-efficient car. But where, where can people need some handles to grab onto this? Michelle Eldridge, sort of, what would you say, sort of, what should people do if they wanted one actionable item after listening to this? Yeah, I mean, well, the dot is do one thing. You know, that's what we did, like, a, f a few years ago. We really... Uh, press that it was like you know at the end of a presentation we're speaking to hundreds of students what one thing you can you walk away with and you know and we give people examples everything with you know from bringing your own water bottle to you know reusable bags and now sort of our, our dots are sort of shifted to like what what do you what are you really passionate about and how does that relink to this climate issue because those so just people can go a little bit deeper with that conversation but like I have a video in a plastic state of mind for example you can check it out online um you know, um, it has, you know, almost a million views or whatever. So people get excited, like, I'm going I'm to get a, you know, I'm going to get a reusable bag now. But then we found that what was really impactful is when students got together in Colorado, for example, students from different parts of Colorado got together and said, hey, we want to ban plastic bags in Colorado together. So they knocked on that. That dot became that knock on the governor's door. And then that was a whole nother conversation that the, the bag industry had to look at and like, whoa, what's going on? So yeah, start start small. Definitely, you know, 350 is really good to have you come out through those those small actions, and then there's always the next step of like looking. Well, what can I do more? What systems? Like Heather's talking about, what systems are or are we banging up against? Uh, Heather Frombach. Um, yeah, the do one thing depends a lot on who you are. You know, especially in thinking about school food systems, there's so many people um, that are involved, and a lot of times it just starts with asking a question or, or conversation. You know, if you're 
a school food service you know, person, if you're ordering the food for your school, um, maybe just call up your distributor and say, hey, can you give me um, a local or a sustainable berry? Just start with, with one thing and see if it works for your budget. If you're, if you're a student, you know, like we were talking about earlier, just um, you know, join an environmental club or, or, um, or just try to have a conversation with your school cafeteria folks and see what you're doing and, and how you can do it better. If you are a farmer and you're trying to figure out how you can you know, get linked into this, this school food shift, um, you know, contact an organization like ours, pick up the phone and see if we can help link you to somebody who needs you. If you're a parent, you know, also just starting to ask those questions and see what's going on at your kid's school. Like, for instance, in Oakland, um, one parent, Ruth Woodruff in particular, started asking questions about, about the, the school food in Oakland and, and, uh, and how she could help make it better. And then, you know, fast forward a year later and um, Measure J got passed in Oakland, which was passed with 85% of the, the, of the vote and allocated for the first time, I think, in national history, significant millions amount of dollars to, Oakland's, um, to Oakland Unified um, so they could start a new central kitchen in West Oakland and a, and a, and a farm that's going to completely transform the way Oakland is able to order, prepare, and serve food. So just, you know, like, like Ashel was saying, one, one question, one dot can escalate into something really huge and amazing. Thank you. Mark McCaffrey? I guess my dots, my do one thing would be in three parts, teach, counter, and infuse. We, we need to make sure these are taught and taught well. These topics are complex and they do require a really integrated approach. We need to counter disinformation, counter apathy, and then we need to infuse this throughout the curriculum, throughout our communities, throughout society. We have about a minute left. I don't want to end by asking each of you, what's the next action you will take to reduce your carbon or water footprint? Ashel Eldridge? I think, I think actually the next action I'm taking is really like editing this video, this PSA video that I'm doing, because it helped me like personally, actually, because I'm working with a bunch of students at, at Mount Diablo, you know, so get this PSA video done with them, and in the process, like talk, have these conversations more with them. Heather Frombach, next action. Oh boy, I don't know. I feel like it's all one complex uh, web of actions. <laughs> right, but, uh, right. In terms of specifically, um, I'm going to be supporting our uh, biocultural coordinator at, at, at an organization who works on water conservation by helping her develop some marketing materials for farmers. Mark McCaffrey. I'm taking Bart back to my office. And, uh, <laughs> That's uh, hopefully doing that every day. I cut the water on our tiny lawn when the, when the drought hit and uh, going to do some more LED light bulbs, which are so expensive. I can't do them all at once, but more, I think it's, it's an incremental process. I, I look at it as a ladder. You do a little bit and you, you, know, you climb one rung sure. higher and then you, you can't do it all at once, but sort of keep, keep moving forward. We have to end it there. We've been talking about climate education uh, at a high school in San Francisco. Our guests have been Ashelle Eldridge, Education and Leadership Manager at the Alliance for Climate Education. Heather Frombach is a food systems coordinator with a community alliance with family farmers, and Mark McCaffrey is Programs and Policy Director of the National Center for Science Education. I'm Greg Dalton. A podcast of this and other Climate One shows are available in iTunes at Climate O-N-E. Thank you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd. Editor is Katie McCurran. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. <laughs>